Well, last week we, uh, we looked at five really good practical principles uh, for all of us out of Proverbs chapter 22, verses 11, 12, and 13. I started last week by uh, uh, telling you that, um, or I told you sometime, I can't remember what it was, that somebody asked me one time, what was the one word that uh, would sum up what we need to do when it comes to the Bible to learn it? And I told you that that word was context. Everything has to have a context. If somebody would ask me what the one word was that I would boil everything down in the Christian life for it to be successful, pleasing to God, everything that you would ever want it to be for the Lord, it would be an easy one word. It would be the word principles, learning biblical principles. And we saw it last week, <coughs> five great ones with a lot of sub-principles that went along with it. But we talked about uh, having a pure motive uh, for the things of God, based on a pure heart for God. We talked about the great contrast, or great concept in the Bible of grace and truth. How to make us God's friend, doing the ministry His way and not the way we think we want to do it. We talked about the preservation of the Word of God. How that the Word of God will preserve you. It'll preserve your ministry, it'll preserve your life, it'll preserve your family, it'll preserve everything about you through the power of the Word of God and God keeping you. We talked about knowing and understanding that once you have that preservation of the Word of God into your life, that nothing or no one will ever stop you in doing the work of God. We talked about being bold, never being fearful, but have a boldness in all that we do uh, for the Lord Jesus Christ. Our confidence comes from our, in ourselves comes from our confidence in the Lord and the Word of God and through the principles of the Word of God. And everything that we do here will come down, uh, not only in your life, but the way we structure our church, uh, will come down to trying to see everything in life from God's standpoint. Ceasing to look at it from our point of view, but seeing it through God's point of view. And that key element will only, only happen because of the principles found in the Word of God. So far, we have talked about through 22, a bountiful eye, looking at the opportunities that God puts before you, seeing the opportunities that God wants to give us. We talked last week about a pure heart, which leads to a pure motive in the things we do for God, and the great concept, as I've already said, of grace and truth. Having the truth of God, but then having the grace to administer the truth of God. And without a doubt, the key uses in life and the Bible uh, will be based on us getting the principles down, the Word of God. Proverbs chapter 4, verse 7 is a, is a great, a great verse, one of my favorites. And it says, Wisdom is the principal thing, and with all thy getting, the principles, get understanding. And what he's saying there, that the key to getting God's understanding, the ability to see everything the way God sees it, will come from a principled life. Learning the principles, because within those principles we find how God sees. Yet, learning the principles, and I'll be very honest with you, and uh, I've told you this many, many times, learning the principles is like any other study that you'll ever take through the Word of God. I mean, you can take word studies. We've talked about that. You can take character studies. Many of you are very good at that. You can study the books of the Bible, study the chapters in the Bible, um, you know, you can study types within the Bible. That's a great study. Numerology is a, is a great study. Uh, you can do topical studies. You can do historical studies. You can do doctrinal studies, prophetic stuff. Or you can do inspirational studies for your own life. 
But learning biblical principles, taking a study of learning biblical principles is different than any other study that you'll ever take within the Bible. When a person comes into this church, we encourage them to get involved in Discipleship 1 and Discipleship 2. And uh, it's where you start. Those are the entry levels of your relationship with Christ after you get saved. These lessons are the foundational teachings of the Bible, uh, what we believe. Uh, your first layer, Bible says in 1 Corinthians 3 verse 11 that no other foundation is laid than in Jesus Christ. When you got saved, you laid a foundation in your life. That foundation is Christ, your salvation. The first things you should build on that foundation is the basic understanding of how Christianity works, how your salvation works, how the Bible works, bringing you through those fundamental issues that you need to know. And, uh, but when a person wants to learn the principles, it's a whole different level. Uh, you'll notice that in all of the things that we have here in our church, we don't have a, we don't have a set of lessons on learning principles. Because you learn your, your, learning the principles will be more than just somebody giving you verses. And I'm all for that. You learn principles by not storehousing them. And that's what a lot of God's people do. A lot of people, and especially in a church like this that teaches so much Bible, there's a tendency for you just to take a lot of stuff but never do anything with it. And you learn principles not by storehousing them, uh, uh, you know, not by, uh, you know, getting as many as you can. And most, of, uh, and, and, and most or many people, you know, they get the idea that if you get a bunch of principles, that's going to solve all your problems in life. And, and that's not true. I grew up in Christianity hearing preachers say all the time, if you read your Bible, the Bible will solve all the problems that you'll ever have in life. I heard that all of my life, and one day as I matured a little bit, I realized that that wasn't exactly true. Now, I'm all for the Bible, but you know reading the Bible won't solve your problems? Applying what you read will solve your problems. And just storehousing your cataloging principles won't solve your problems. You have to, you have to use and apply what you learn. Uh, principles, you know... Just like I, I, I tell people all the time, you know, we will disciple you and we'll take you through discipleship too. But from time to time, we get people to want to be discipled, but they don't want to come to church. You know, that, that doesn't work. Discipleship one and two are all tied into what you learn here. And you can't get one without the other. And it's the same way with principles. Principles have to be tied into you, putting them into your own life first. And then, in different levels, taking them to somebody else. But they have to start with your own personal application. And somebody who claims to want all the principles, but continually with their family, with their kids, with their marriage, with, with their whatever, continually make bad choices and bad decisions. It, it, principles are an incredible thing. And principles will come in set. This is why you can't put them into just verses. It's like in a high-tech piece of electronic equipment. And I don't know anything about that, but I just know this illustration. And a big piece of technical whatever. When something goes wrong and they call in a technician, they made them now so everything runs on circuit boards. He'll put his little thing up there, and he'll, he'll listen, and he'll find out what's bad, and he'll just pull out this little panel of circuits, 
and put a new one in and voila. That whole sophisticated electrical technology is built on individual circuit boards that you put in and then they all lock together to make it work. That's what principles do. Principles are like circuit boards. And on every circuit board you may have, you know, this circuit board runs A, B, C, and D, but on it it may have 30 little electrodes or whatever they put in those things that, uh, that makes it all work. Okay, principles come in sets, like the circuit boards. You have a set of circuits for marriage, for remarriage, for divorce. There may be 20, 30 principles that go along with that. You have, we talked about it a couple of weeks ago on Thursday night, you have a circuit board, a set of principles for dating. You have one for finding a job. You have one, we came through it for two months, training your children. For every issue in life, there will be a set of principles. Now, principles come in three formats. You'll find principles that are direct principles. They're right to you that you can apply to yourself and everybody else. Then you'll have indirect principles. There'll be things about the generalities in life, like maybe our country or our government or this or that, that isn't directly affected you, but indirectly, you need to know what's going on. And then you have the personal principles. Those are the ones that God has given you through tough times. Those are the ones that you have that got you through when nothing else got you through. And those are the ones that, let's be honest, they're the most valuable. They're the ones that you wouldn't be here today if you didn't have them. Many times you can share them with somebody that you're going through, but it's a situation where they, they fall into that pattern. And principles will be found in different aspects. Sometimes you'll just take one verse out of the Bible, and that's a great principle. It's like there's a bunch of them in Philippians. Then sometimes you'll find a chapter. What'll just be the whole chapter will be uh, a great principle. Like 1 Samuel chapter 3 comes to my mind. And then you'll have, you'll have where maybe a book in the Bible relies a whole set of principles. And I'm thinking of maybe like the book of Job and, and other places. Principles are absolutely the essentials of the Christian life. And if there was one word, <clears throat> if there was one word that I could give you today, other than the word context to learn your Bible, if there's one word that I could give you today that would be everything that you need for the victorious Christian life, it would be principles. Learning the principles of the Word of God. Somebody just giving you principles will not really help you. When I taught you principles, and, and we have coming up next week, the people ministry, and you know what that is. A number of years ago, I had got the church to a place where people were coming in and we were growing and people wanted to have issues and I needed to have help and I wanted to train you and you reproduce yourself and others. And so we started the people ministry. And it was a thing where it was volunteer. Anybody could get in it. And when you got in it, you realized that it was unlike any other thing you probably ever had been in your life. Because we go to work. And what do we do? I began to teach you Basically, starting in Genesis, walking all the way through the Bible, and we're in Jeremiah, I think, this next week. We've come a ways. I just started pulling out the circuit boards. I showed you, I showed you in Genesis chapter 27, the circuit board of deception, how to know when somebody's deceiving you. 
I pulled out the circuit board in Genesis chapter 3 and showed you how that people will use God in their deception. We just simply walk through every story in the Bible. The thing we did a couple weeks ago in Genesis 24 about dating, that's just a circuit board. That's that, In the big, big machine of Christianity, when you have problems in dating or your kids starting to date, and hey, I know your moms and dads are calling me. Our little girls are growing up. I looked at my oldest Maddie this morning, and I, I thought, who's that? And you were, some of you were, moms are calling me on the phone and saying, I am getting so nervous about, they're, they're going to start dating. What am I going to do? Do what Jamie does. Just drive them, follow them around in the car all night long. <laughs> you got a circuit board. You got a whole set of principles on everything you need to know about your child dating, male or female. You got a circuit board right there. And we walked through every aspect of it. We talked about dealing with people. Remember that one in 1 Kings chapter 3, Solomon and the two harlots. What an incredible set of principles that you follow in dealing with people. We talked about in 2 Samuel chapter 5, they pulled out the circuit board of how to break satanic strongholds in a person's life. We pulled out the circuit board in 1 Kings chapter 18 and saw the great principles on depression. We pulled the circuit board out in 2 Kings chapter 6 and I, I showed you the principles on the real issues of spiritual warfare. I've showed you before in Luke chapter 8 the principles on how to heal your family. In Exodus chapter 32, I remember pulling that circuit board out and teaching you the principles on leadership. And on and on it went. And on and on it will go. And you learn principles by learning your Bible. You don't just sit down and say, go give me a bunch of principles. You never learn principles by just feeding somebody, feeding them to you. Unless... You're working in, a, in an already area like the people ministry or something that, you know, I mean, discipleship one, absolutely. Sit down, teach them the Bible. Discipleship two, I get it. Those are entry levels. In the Bible, there are seven stages of spiritual growth that we all go through. And Paul talks about those. He talks about babies. Brand new Christians. He talks about little children that are, that are beginning to grow. He talks about children that get a little bit farther down the line. And when you do this D1 and D2, that's the three elements you're working with. They don't require a lot of principles. They just need some basic fundamental Bible. But then he says, the next area is growing into young men. And then fathers, when you begin to take responsibility for somebody else, and then the elders and the aged, there's where the principles come in. There's where you take those people, like many of you do, and you don't teach them to the babies. You don't teach them to the little children. You don't teach them. Now, you know what? Some of God's people have been saved for 5, 10, 15, 20 years, and they never move out of the first three stages. 
There'll always be little babies. There'll always be little children. There'll always be children. They'll never come to the place where they ever, and I'm going to show you why that is in just a moment. But if you've seen in the people ministry at some point in your life, you have to quit relying on others to give you your Bible. You really do. I watch you young guys and you young gals coming up who I love so dearly, and I, I, I just love you so much. And I watch you midline people who have been with me now for, you know, seven or eight years, and you have come so far, and you're doing so well, and you work in areas that, that, uh, that most God's people could never get into. But it's because of the system that we have put together to bring you through a spiritual growth process. And I watched you guys. I watched you when you came in and you didn't know anything. And now I've watched you in a year, two years, where now you're really going after the Bible yourself. You have to get to the point at some point in your life where you quit relying on everybody else to teach you the Bible. You still have your church. You still have Bible study. You still have Sunday morning. And they all have their purpose but you now have begun to do the work of the Word of God in your life. <laughs> I, like, uh, I like science fiction movies. My favorite ones are the ones that were made back in the 1950s. Long before most of you were born. I got a whole box of DVDs on, on the 1950s sci-fi movies. There's a, I like it because I try to learn from everything. And there's a mindset behind the science fiction movies that was made in the 50s, up and maybe even to the 60s. One of them, and I don't have time to get into all this, but one of them has to do with all the alien stuff, and that was because of what happened in Roswell in 1947. The other one has to do with nuclear radiation. Because the A-bomb was set off in 1945, so it kicked off a bunch of, of science fiction movies about mutant everything. I mean, mutant crabs that get to be as big as a house. I mean, dinosaurs frozen in the ice, and suddenly, you know, when uh, uh, the bomb goes off, it melts the polar caps, and this big monster comes out, and then eats New York, and, you know, and it's, it's incredible stuff. I, my favorite is The Giant Praying Mantis. How many ever seen that movie? Oh, that's a great movie. That's a great movie. It's one of the best, but it, it tells you, know how he got so big? Nuclear radiation. If I really thought that was true, I'd be in a nuclear chamber getting radiated all my life. Didn't work for me, I'm still short. But I, I, but I, I, I like those. But some of them, let's be honest, some of them are really goofy. The goofiest one I ever saw, and I didn't like the movie. I, in fact, I didn't watch it. I think I watched it once, and I would never watch it again. But it stuck with me. It was the <laughs> Little Shop of Horrors. How many have seen that? That's terrible. It's absolutely terrible. The budget for that had to be $1.99. <laughs> and it's a story, but it reminds me of so many, so many Christians. See, I get you. This is what you do. I get you laughing, tell you a few little jokes, and then wham, I hit you. You don't even know it. It's a story about this mad scientist 
who grows this plant. And the plant has to eat people. Female, women, yeah, it has to eat. I think it's just women. Yeah, he's got a particular taste bud. But he just eats women. So this guy keeps bringing women down and showing them this. And, and he pushes them into this plant. And, it's got, and the plant says it's got one line through the whole movie. Everybody. Feed me. This big plant, feed me. I thought about that years after when I got plugged into the God. That's the way a lot of God's people are. They'll go around their whole Christian life. They'll never get into the Bible themselves. They'll never do anything. But they'll just go around and every time, feed me. Give me this. Give me principles. Give me that. Feed me. And I'm telling you, most people... They, they won't do. You know, I talked a couple of weeks ago about, about change. And I said, I deal with a lot of people that want to change, but they never change. And the reason why they never change is they want to change, but there's no commitment to change. And it's the same way with the principles. People say, I want to learn principles. I know you do, but the problem is there's no commitment in your life to learn those principles. You just want to warehouse them. You want to get as many as you can get. You want to have your, your, your pistol belt full of, of principal bullets. And most people, they want to categorize them. They want to or catalog, put them in a catalog. They want to storehouse them. But they never get into themselves. And when we just keep giving them the Bible without any accountability to it, uh, we, don't, we don't do them any favors. We just enable them them to... The never to grow and get past those first three stages. I'll give you a great example of this. I have people all the time. I really want to learn principles. Teach me principles. Let me tell you something. Let me show you my point. I gave you five principles last week. There isn't a Bible study that doesn't go by. There isn't a Sunday morning that doesn't go by. I have been systematically counting them for you because I was going to use this. I'm going to give you another seven or eight, nine today. That's not counting the sub things, and that's not counting the good jokes I give you free of charge. <laughs> and yet you'll sit through those sermons. I will tell you, here's a principle, here's a principle, here's a principle, and yet you do nothing with them. Absolutely nothing with them. I told you last week, here's five. I'm going to give you another probably ten today. Thursday night, I remember, I gave you a bunch more. We do nothing with them. You know why? Because if you would write those down and begin to go through your Bible and work them out and put them into the categories and the formats that they are, that's, that's a lot of work. It's easier to, to be the plant in the basement, feed me. Both the People Ministry and Bible Institute are set up for me to teach you, but you have to do the work with what I give you. You know, there's probably no Bible Institute in the country, maybe there is, I don't know, that gives you any kind of teaching that doesn't require a test. Early on, years ago, I used to do that. And then I growed up one day and found out how stupid and worthless that really was. Because you all know, and I all know, when we were in high school, and some of you are better this than I am, you had to cram for a test to pass it to get the course, but you don't remember anything about what you learned in that school. In other words, the test was a joke. 
And see, I could, I could teach you the Bible, teach you the Bible, give you this test. There were some tests I gave back in the day that took them six, seven hours to do it. They had to get a room someplace for worthless. What, what good is it that I give you all this material and then I'm going to test you on it to see if you really got it? You know how I'll know if you really got it and it won't be any test on a piece of paper. It'll be what you do with it down the line in your life. That's the real test. real test isn't you giving me the right answers on the right thing. The real test is what do you do with it in your life once you get them? What are you doing with it? What are you, what are you, what are you doing with it? There's no test has to be involved. Now, last week, I told you that a lot of God's people will only go so far. And that is true. Uh, that's a tragic thing, and I hate to see it. And I do everything in my power to help you. You know me. I'll give you whatever you need. I, I want to make available for you everything that I can. And I do that for two reasons. One, I genuinely love you. I want to help you, my people, get where you need to be. But I have a selfish ulterior motive, I need to tell you. And that is that the judgment seat of Christ, you will never point your finger at me and say, he didn't give me a shot. You'll get more than one shot. And you'll find people that will be more than satisfied to, to, to live off your spirituality. They'll get saved, they're babies, they're a young child, they get into the Bible a little bit, they become like little children. But all of their life, they don't want to dig into the Word of God themselves. They want everything fed to them. But they themselves will never dig in the Word of God like many of you have done. And that's why you're growing. You cannot live, I don't know who's discipling you, and I don't know who's teaching you discipleship, one or two. I'm sure they're good, whoever they are, or they wouldn't be doing it. I don't know who's giving you or helping you, whatever you're at in the Bible, but I want to tell you this. At some point in your life, you cannot live on their spirituality forever. You have to develop your own. You have to develop your own principles into your own categories that you use. You have to develop your own abilities to study the Bible, to get into the Word of God. And the Bible says in Luke chapter 12, verse 48, to whom much is given, much is required. And, you know, this ministry is not hard to figure out. I give you a lot of material. I simply require you to do something with what I give you based on that verse. Now, if you don't, it's okay. I still love you. That's not, it's not my problem. It's your deal. You know, in dealing with people or dealing with issues... You always have to use the principles. I say it again. If there was one word that would sum up the victorious Christian life of you getting through the issues of life that we're all going to have to face, it will be principles. Learning them will be a lifelong process. Years ago, like I told you uh, yesterday in, in, people, uh, in uh, Institute, you know, I'm a very simple guy. I, I'm not very intelligent. I don't have a high IQ. I think it's around subplant life someplace. I've never claimed to be the smartest guy in the world. I do claim to be the fastest one in the slow class. I have to break everything down into basic, simple things for me. And when I looked at people's problems, and I've been dealing with people's problems for almost 50 years, man. I've seen every problem there is. 
And I, and I, and I, I through the years, as I looked at that, I, I tried to put it into a context for me that I could, I could put these into different levels that I knew how to deal with what I needed to deal with. And I just happened to come up with the idea like the medical world does or a doctor would do. He, uh, or a medic in a, in a combat situation, he will, he, will, he will grade out the patients to their severity of who needs the medical help the most and first. And I've watched many of you move up through these levels. I've got some of you that were saved three or four years that are so far ahead of somebody has been saved five or 10 or 15 years, it's unbelievable. And I'm not saying they're bad people. They're probably wonderful people. But I'm saying it, when it comes to the principles in the Bible and the Christian life, you have to be committed to it. You can't just say, I want to do it. I'm going to do it. Hey, every year, every New, New Year's, I find God's people come up to me and slap me on the back or hug me and say, this year I'm going to do it. And I say to myself, wow, you haven't done it in the last 15. What makes this year different? There's only one thing that will make a difference. You know what it is? Commitment. It isn't that you're going to learn the Bible. It's now you're going to be committed to learn the Bible. That means you're going to do whatever you got to do. It isn't that, oh, I want to learn principles. I want to be able to work with people. I want to be able to understand all those. It is, are you committed to do it? And that takes a lot of work. Or are you just committed to live off somebody else's spirituality forever? Let them... Feed me. There you go. You guys got to get up with this thing. This thing, our sermon from this point on relies on participation, okay? You got to help me. Let's just try one out of the woodwork to see if we forgot. Life is tough. Okay, you're with me. All right, good deal. I, I broke them down into three little categories for me. And I've taught you this in people ministry. But I looked at the medical world, and people come in, you know, the Bible says Jesus was the great physician. They got spiritual issues. I have a good doctor that is a good friend of mine. His name is Dr. Boyer. He's probably one of the best doctors that I've tried to get Bubba to go to that won't. (laughs) Don't take that as pressure, Bubba, but uh, you know what? You need to get to the doctor because I need to have you around for another hundred years. Probably wouldn't hurt Donnie to go either. He's a great doctor. And he, I've, known him, I've known him for years, for years and years and years. And uh, uh, he's, uh, uh, I went over there a couple, about a month ago, I had, I don't think I had the flu, but I just had really bad whatever I had. And so I went to urgent care, which you go in the morning, you know how they, that's a neat little deal. And uh, you go in there and be there by 8 o'clock and they'll see you. And, but it's always the nurse practitioner who you get to see, who, who, there's nothing wrong with that. She may not be a full-fledged doctor, but this one is really good. So I go in there, you know, and they take me in a room, and the nurse comes in and checks my blood pressure, and I she leaves the door open, she goes out, and I hear Dr. Bouye down the hall, and he says, is that Bob Alexander in there? She, she, she said, yeah. He said, bring him down to me. I'm going to take care of him. No, that's good. <laughs> that's, that's good. And he, we've talked before. He said, you know, he says, he says, how's your church going? And I said, it's going good. He says, good. He says, yeah. He says, you know, there's a lot of similarities. This is a doctor now. And I believe he's a saved man. This is a doctor now. He says, you know, there's a lot of similarities between what you do and what I do. And I said, yeah, there really is. 
And he says, we, uh, we get spiritual advice all the time. And he says, you know, because sometimes, he says, but there's a, real, there's a real parallel between what you do and I do. And, he, and so we talked, and one time I went in there, and we're, we're, I, we're not best friends, or we're not drinking buddies or anything, but we're just, I don't drink, but we're just, we're, you know, and he said to me, I said to him one time, he said, yeah, he says, I didn't, he said, how was church Sunday? And I said, it was good. He says, yeah, I didn't, I didn't make it to church this Sunday. And I said, oh, okay. So, so then he sent me over to get some blood work. My cholesterol was a little high. You understand, Bubba? Your cholesterol gets a little high sometimes? Okay. <laughs> How am I doing, huh? Am I putting it to him, huh? Okay, good. I'm not going to let off of him. He's going to go. I already told him he's waiting for you to call. Yeah. I said, his name is Bubba. Okay. So he says to me, he says, so he takes me over there, and there's a bunch of people there. And he, he, likes, to, he likes to put it to me a little bit. So he, I'm in there waiting in line, and he says, okay, get your blood work done. And he says, he's walking out. He says, you lay off the sweets now so you get that cholesterol down. And everybody kind of giggled. And I said, I will. You make sure you get to church next Sunday, too. (laughs) Everybody laughed. (laughs) He told me, he says, there's so many parallels between what we do. And it's true. So when I look at people's problems, I break them into level one, level two, and level three. Uh, Level one, I call band-aids and methylate. People come in with just little ouchies. You fell down and scraped your elbow or your knee or you chipped a tooth. You don't have any real issues. You're lonely. You haven't found what you're looking for. You're just looking for the answers in life. And And you get here and you find it and there's no real work involved. You get discipled. You get into volleyball. You get into softball. You get into the prayer groups. You get to make friends. You're good. Off you go. I mean, you get plugged in and nothing's going to hold you back. That's, that's what I call level one. We'll put them to discipleship one, put them to discipleship two, and boy, they find what they wanted and off they go. Then you have level two. I call level two broken arms and appendectomies. It's a little more complicated. Somebody comes in with a broken arm, you don't put my phylate on them and give them an aspirin and say, call me in the morning. Now we have life a little more complicated. Now we may have marital problems. We may have a divorce issue going on. We may have somebody struggling with some issues in life. It may be somebody who has a real battle with cigarettes or somebody who has a battle with with alcohol or somebody who has a battle with losing their salvation, eternal security. Or it just may be bad habits that somebody has developed you know, life habits that you picked up over 20 years and you're having a tough time with it. And now we, we, we begin to use the principles. Now in a basic early stage, now we begin to use the principles. And then we have level three. I call level three heart transplants and brain surgery. Now we have some issues. Now we have people that are in deep depression. So deep that they can't get out of bed in the morning. So deep that they don't want to live anymore. Now we've had people that have, have had two or three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine bad marriages. They have some severe relationship problems. Now we have people who have abused, or children who are in abusive families. I mean, a terrible situation. 
Now, fundamentally, these are the satanic strongholds where uh, that the things of this life have completely taken over your world and you cannot break them. This is where we'll have the unnatural sins that Romans chapter 1 talks about. This is where we'll have people who uh, want to commit, commit suicide. This is where families will be disorganized and completely dysfunctional. And you've got to try to put it all back together. It's like a trauma surgeon in a hospital. You know, they wheel somebody in that was just in a 10-car pileup, and, he's, and they had to life flight him in, and, or her, and, you know, there's multiple contusions, there's this or that, you don't know what's done inside, blood's coming out his nose, his eyes, his mouth, his ears, he's unresponsive, his blood pressure's dropping. What do you do? Get a box of Band-Aids? No, you have a whole battery of things that you do to put that guy's condition as a doctor into a context that you know how to treat him. That's what you do with principles. You have a whole series of sets of principles that you use, that you have been developing on your own as you have been going through, not having somebody else just feed them to you, but you have been taking them, doing something with them in your own life, in your own family first. Don't tell me you're going to work on a second or third level when your own kids can't get it together. And of course, this is where you have to be able to put all of it together. You as the attending physician at somebody's tragedy in their life. You know, I I try to tell you as Christians in this church, I can't speak for anybody else. I want to train you one way. I want to give you everything I can. I want to take you through every scenario I know. I want you to work with me side by side. I want to put you into every scenario, give you the good, the bad, and many times the ugly things that you got to work with. I'll be there to help you. But at the end of the day, what I want is a church full of men and women When it comes to the issues and the problems of life that people have, when everybody else is running out of the building, you're running in because you have the answers. You can look at that scenario and through the principles, you can diagnose what the problem is, you can see it for what it is, and then you go and you pull out of your first aid kit exactly the principles that you need to give them what they need. That's what what we want to do. That's what needs to be done. You you never tell somebody in a problem, and I hear this all the time, you never tell someone in a problem, with a problem. You never tell them. You, You never tell them what they need to do. You tell them where they're at and, 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 and by the principles, and you show them what their options are based on what the Word of God says. So each week, each week, each week, we, we, we begin to, to catalog principles. And we need to format them into the actual circuit boards that we can put into a person's life. When we pull out the one that's burned out, then we put in another one in that's got the right circuits to it that ties them back to the Word of God. Now, let's look at our text today. And you're going to see how that it's going to blend right into what I just said. And this was just my introduction, by the way. And it was quite impressive, I do believe. (laughs) Proverbs chapter 22, verse 14, 15, and 16. The mouth of a strange woman is a deep pit. 
He that is abhorred of the Lord shall fall therein. Foolishness is bound in the heart of a child, but the rod of correction shall drive it far from him. He that oppresseth the poor to increase his riches, and he that giveth to the rich shall surely come to want. Now, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask God's blessing upon it. And, uh, and Gene Geisiger, would you stand up and ask God's blessing on the sermon this morning? Verse 14 says, The mouth of a strange woman is a deep pit. He that abhorreth the Lord shall fall therein. Now let's begin to look at the key components of this verse. And again, we're going to look at it from a doctrinal, historical, and a practical application so we get all the right context. Now we have seen this woman before. We have been in Proverbs for a while now, but we were formally introduced to her in Proverbs 2, uh, then again in 5. And then uh, uh, chapter 5, verse 20. And then finally again in, in 7, 5. And we have bumped into her throughout our course of the book of Proverbs. Now doctrinally, we know this to be the counterpart to the Antichrist. Um, his, his religion, which is found in Revelation chapter 17 and 18. Revelation 17, 5 says, Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and abomination of the earth. That's this religion's title. This, it's a, there's a great picture of this in the Bible. There's a number of pictures of it. But uh, the most outstanding one would be in 1 Kings chapter 18, which deals with Ahab and Jezebel. Uh, in Old Testament Baal worship, uh, you will always have a female deity up against the counterpart of a male deity. And that's how that they all went. And she is called in Jeremiah chapter 44, verse 18, the Queen of Heaven. A couple of weeks ago on a Thursday night, we talked about the great goddess Diana over there in Acts chapter 19, verse 35. She was another female deity. History is filled with them. Iris and Osiris. I mean, it's endless. It's endless. All pagan religions will have a male-female deity that they will have a joint worship of. Now, historically... Uh, this will be a reference to the strange women of Solomon's day uh, that he took, that took his heart away from God. And in 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 1, it simply says that, but King Solomon loved many strange women. And uh, the women are listed for him down here, the, from Moab and the Amorites and the Zidonians and the Hittites. And uh, he says in verse 2, women from all the nations which the Lord said, don't have anything to do with. And the Bible says that uh, he has, in verse 3, he winds up with a score of 1,000 of them. That's quite a collection. And uh, it says in verse 4 that it came to pass but when Solomon was old that his wives turned away his heart after other gods and his heart was not perfect uh, with the Lord his God as was the heart of David his father. And then it says that he goes after Ashtoreth. Now that's a female deity, see? That's the goddess of fertility. Ashtoreth is where we get our, our Easter word from. And then it talks about the, the Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. And so he, he goes after all of these strange women and whose mouth is a pit of false gods. And as you see in 5 and 6, he falls right into it. 
And uh, this is exactly what will happen in your life and my life and our family and, and our church when uh, the Word of God becomes none effect. I had a guy that, uh, uh, that uh, I, I've known for quite a while, and uh, he's, he, he got into a business. My own personal thing was that he probably never should have got into it, but he never asked me. And I found out this last week that he's got to give up the business. He's only been in it a short time. And, so, and it's going to affect a lot of people. So I, I went in, and me included. So I went in and I said, Adam, I said, hey, pal, I said, uh, I heard the rumor that uh, you're shutting down this place. And, uh, and maybe, uh, is that true? And he looked up and he says, yeah. He said, uh, I'm going to have to. And I, and I like this kid. He's a nice kid. Uh, and he, he proceeded to give me five reasons why he had to shut down the business that he now was in. I won't go through them, but they were five legitimate reasons. And as I sat there and listened to him and I walked back out, I thought to myself, wow, what a great lesson that was for me. Because those five reasons that he gave me why he's giving up what he's doing after what, three or four or five months, should have been the same five reasons he looked at before he got into it. He didn't follow the principles. Many times we have to get into a mess that we would never have to get into if we just looked at the principles before the mess instead of after the mess. You're right, darling. That is true. <laughs> my life is filled with people who don't want to ask my advice before they do something stupid, but boy, they want my help after the stupidity of it comes out. And I help them. How stupid am I? <laughs> I help them. It's my job. I've done stupid things. You do. Anybody here never done a stupid thing? Raise your hand. Ah, <laughs> Your wife was just ready to elbow you. In fact, she has a list in her purse that she wanted to give me right after church this morning. And what happens is the nation of Israel now begins to go into a slow spiral. The nation lasted actually for another 400 years after God took the kingdom from Solomon. But it's, it's in a demise and it's a spiral down. It's a slow spiral down till. Uh, in life for you and for me when we violate principle after principle after principle. It's a slow spiral down. You don't notice it right away. It doesn't happen all at one time. And suddenly you wake up one morning and your life's a mess. That's how it works. You know, I used to do a lot of traveling and I had a couple of pilots that used to fly me around, little, little planes, you know. And I always enjoyed that. And, I, and I, again, I try to learn from everything. You know, learning to become a pilot is a lot like learning to become a good Christian. I, I've never been a pilot. I, I, would, would never take, I would be dead in a week. I push the limit too much. I, I know my limitations. Uh, they would say, the F, FAA would say, you can't fly it here. And I'd say, yeah, I can. I'd be flying over Chief Stadium, you know. I, I, it just wouldn't work for me. They say, don't land, it's too rough. I say, I'm coming in. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't do it. But I have a lot of respect for really good pilots. But you know, being a good Christian is the same process to be good. When you want to be a pilot, the first thing you're going to do is go to ground school. And you go to ground school without ever getting in a plane. That's discipleship one and discipleship two here. That's our ground school. I want you to fly with the eagles of God, but you have to start in ground school. And then once you get into ground school, then you go to flight school. And now you get to sit in an airplane. You'll get to 
show you what all the controls are. You may even get to be in a simulator. But once you go through ground school and then you get your flight training and then you really get proficient, then there's a time that you have to solo in that plane. The guy will take you up and he'll fly you around and he'll sit next to you in the back seat and you've got somebody with you. He'll show you how to land. You'll do takeoffs and touchbacks and land and all that stuff. And then you'll go through flight school. That's you going through discipleship and learning from other people with you helping you. Then there's a day that Bob comes out and he says, look, I got this guy I want to put you with and I want you to take him and I want you to work with him. You know what he's going to do now? He's going to solo. There comes a time in your life as a Christian, you got to solo. You got to get out by yourself. You won't be able to look over my shoulder. You know why I don't go to Lincoln? I'd love to go to Lincoln. You know why I don't go to Lincoln? Because if I went to Lincoln, you'd never learn to solo. You'd always be looking over my shoulder. You'd be coming to me and say, hey, what about this? I'd say, I don't, I'm going to go get a cheeseburger. I don't want to talk about it. You've got to learn to solo. You have to learn to solo. And then after you solo for a while, now you become pretty confident flying a plane, don't you? But you know what? You're still not a really good pilot. Oh, it's a great parallel. Because now you may fly places, but you've got to find out you can only fly now when the weather's good. You've got to make sure if you're going point A to point B that there's no storms, there's no clouds, that nothing that stuff. Because you've got to have a clear line of sight because you're a pilot and you can fly, but you're not a really good pilot. Because a really good pilot will go to the next level and he will get instrument rated. He'll be able to fly in any weather. You see, you can't fly without instrument rating in clouds because when you get in there, you lose all sense of perception. You're, you're flying and you think you're flying straight and you're flying into the ground. You're, you're flying and you think you're straight and you're turning. You lose everything around you that gives you any kind of reference and you have to rely on the instruments that tell you you're right side up, you're going straight, you're turning left, you're turning right, you're banking, you're going to crash, you're dead. And as a Christian, you can only go so far, but there comes a time in your Christian life when you have to get instrument rated. You have to be able to fly through the clouds of this life and the problems in this life when you can't tell what's up and what's down. You, a pilot relies on the instruments. You rely on the principles. Same thing. You find all kinds of Christians that can fly. I'm looking for ones that are instrument rated. That God can throw you in any circumstance where the other Christian doesn't know if he's right side up or down. But you have a true course because you have learned to use the principles. You're instrument rated. And that's what it takes. Most of God's people are just flying by the seat of their pants. Now inspirationally, this this strange woman here, we know, uh, will be a reference to uh, the Roman Catholic Church. And I would suggest, without getting into a lot of that, I would suggest that you just read uh, some great material uh, that's out there. One would be in the eight volumes of Philip Schaff on church history. He's got a volume on the life of Constantine. Pretty good. We have back in our bookstore, Babylon Mystery Religion by Woodrow. Exceptional book. Read Daniel 2. Read Daniel 7. Uh, get the works by a guy by the name of Avro Manhattan, 
who was the world's most foremost authority on the Roman Catholic Church. He's born in Milan, Italy in 1914, I believe, and he dies around 1990. He writes books called The Vatican Billions that deals with the wealth of the Catholic Church. He deals with the Vatican Holocaust and how they were tied into the Nazis and the Holocaust with the Jews. He wrote about the Vatican-Moscow-Washington Alliance, the collusion that goes on there. He wrote about the Vatican and world politics. He wrote a book on Catholic terrorism in Ireland, the IRA, where Ian Peasley, uh, fought at all took place. He talked about the murder in the Vatican, how that they killed Pope John. He talked about Catholic imperialism in the world of freedom. He wrote a book on that. He talked about Latin America and the Vatican, and he lays out how that the liberation theology that we all know and love today started with Archbishop Romero in El Salvador. And I think for me personally, the greatest book that he wrote, and we have this back in the bookstore, Vietnam, Why Did We Go? (laughs) Ah, you're talking about turning the lights on. My goodness. Now, the reference here and the key reference will be to her mouth. That's very important. The Bible says in verse 14 that her mouth is a deep pit. The key word pit here in the Bible in Proverbs 30, Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 32, 18, 28, all will be a reference to the lake of fire or hell. And what it's saying here, that if you follow what this strange woman is saying, you're, with her mouth, you're going to wind up in a lake of fire. That's what it's saying. Now, along with that, here's a really good solid principle that, uh, that is on uh, uh, sin, the sinner, and God, and, and how he sees them. Uh, verse 14 says, her mouth is a deep pit, and then it says, uh, he that is abhorred of the Lord shall fall therein. Now, there's a lot of confusion today in Christianity on how God sees and feels about unsaved people. And I know we live in a time that everything has kind of gotten soft in the Bible and Christianity. I, I get that. And like most things in the Bible, uh, it's, uh, it's completely off base. How many times I've heard a pastor say, you know, and, or a Christian say it. I've heard them get up and they say, well, you know what? God hates the sin, but he loves the sinner. And all the congregation will say amen. And God's people actually think that that's found in the Bible or somebody in the Bible said that. That quote is from Gandhi. It wasn't from anybody that we know and love as a child of God. And uh, in a, no one time in the Bible anywhere uh, does that statement found. Now, I, I get it. I, I, and I want to explain this to you. Uh, you know... John 3.16 says, and I know where you're going, John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believe in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. I get it. I understand that. But have you ever analyzed that verse in the light of the principles in the Word of God? Now, we are all saved this morning. I'm going to say probably most of us are. There may be one or two here that slipped in, but I, for the most part, we're all saved. Now, I'm not saying your salvation is based on this, but I'm saying as you grow through the spirit, spirit, seven stages of spiritual growth, in the Bible, you know, there's 12 doctrines of salvation. Can anybody tell me today what the doctrine of expiation is found in the Bible? Can anybody tell me what the doctrine of propitiation is found in the Bible? You see, there's 12 fundamental doctrines in the Bible. You just don't look at salvation and look at a verse without putting it into the context and realize that, man, there's a whole bunch in that Bible that helps define how God looks at salvation and how He looks at a sinner. And it's incredible, but most people never do that. Now look, 
If a man is unsaved or a woman unsaved, as far as God is concerned, John 3.36 says, He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life, and he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. Hey, if a man is unsaved in God's sight, as God sees him, he's already in hell with the door shut and the lock rusted up and the key lost. The Bible says that I am already, as a Christian, so are you, seated in heavenly places in God's mind. Just as I am seated in heavenly places on God's mind, the unsaved man has the wrath of God abiding on him. Okay, so how do you get saved? Here comes the doctrine, the doctrine, the doctrine of propitiation found in 1 John chapter 2. And you better get this. That's why Christ had to come down and die. God is holy. God is light. In Him is no darkness at all. Everything about you and me from Romans chapter 3 and Romans chapter 10, we are an anathema to God. My prayer of repentance needs repented of. We're all sinners in God's sight. All of my righteousness is filthy rags in the sight of God. There's none that do it good, no, not one. All have sinned and come short of the glory to God. How does a holy God look at something as vile and wretched and rotten as me and you and then want to save him? That's the question. Doctrine of propitiation. Now, I'm going to say that a lot today because I practiced all day yesterday saying it so I wouldn't screw it up. Because I'm not very good with big words. Most of the big words I use, I make them up out of my own vocabulary because they mean something to me. You may laugh at it. That's because you don't have my intelligence. (laughs) When Christ came down and died on the cross, not only was it my payment for sin, but his death was the only way God could look at me as a sinner and love me. In other words, when God looks at an unsaved man, when he looks at an unsaved man, unsaved man to God, he sees him in hell. And God can't have anything to do with him because he's unholy and God is holy and it would violate every principle in the Word of God. So what God had to do through the doctrine of propitiation, Christ came down, died on the cross, and then shed his blood. And when God looks at you and me before we were saved, the only way he could look at you and me and love us and save us was through what his son did on the cross. That's the doctrine of propitiation. So the death of his son is more than just the shedding of his blood. Ephesians chapter 1, that great book, says that God took everything that Christ is, everything that God is, all blessings and all praise, and put them into his son Christ. So God just didn't love the sinner. He can only love him as he sees him through the blood of Christ. Before salvation, he sees me through Christ. After salvation, he puts me into Christ. See how it works? That's called the doctrine of propitiation. That's why the verse says that they are abhorred of the Lord. Completely unknown today. The doctrine of propitiation, the doctrine of adoption, the doctrine of redemption, the doctrine of remission, the doctrine of expiation. All in the Bible. Now look at verse 15 of Proverbs, verse 15. Foolishness is bound in the heart of a child, but the rod of correction shall drive it far from him. 
Now, it's not saying that when your kid does wrong and you can't control him, put him in a car and drive him far away and leave him off. That's not what it's saying, though many parents probably want to do that. Let's look at it. Historically, it's Rehoboam, Solomon's son, who's a fool. Rehoboam is a fool who never learns the wisdom of his dad. And, uh, you know, he splits the kingdom over there, 1 Kings chapter 12, verse 1 through 22. He splits the kingdom north and south. Jeroboam takes the southern tribes. He takes the northern tribe. It's a mess. And the foolishness of his heart, departing from the principles of his father and his wisdom, destroy the nation of Israel. Even though his kingdom lasts for another three or four hundred years, it's in that small spiral demise down. Now, doctrinally, it'll be the nation of Israel. And it'll be the nation of Israel who, in Exodus chapter 4, is called God's son, and complete foolishness with Israel when it comes to God in the Old Testament. And, of course, they have to now go through the tribulation period, and you'll want to read the Old Testament prophets to see what I'm telling you here. Inspirationally, it'll be you and me as God's child. Uh, you know, that uh, God, uh, we get out of fellowship with God and God's hand of chastisement, like it's laid out in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 through 11. God comes down and takes us to the woodshed. And, of course, the other application, it is your own children. This verse will form not only the teaching of historical value and a prophetic value, but it's an invaluable to the principles of life. You have to deal with your own kids. You have to drive the foolishness out of their heart. And you do it by correction. We just studied it, came through it. Two months with child training here a while back out of Proverbs 22, verse 6. Now look at the next verse, verse 16 here. He that oppresses the poor to increase his riches, and he that giveth to the rich shall surely come to want. Now doctrinally again, this again will be the Antichrist and his system. And, uh, you know, an empire built on the, on the, on the backs of poor people uh, who, uh, um, who have nothing already. And, uh, you know, and even after the poor person, his loved one is dead, they still try to exact money out of him to get him out of purgatory. And, of course, again, if you want to see a book, Avril Manhattan on Vatican Billions, you got to read it. Inspirationally, it'll be the big church concept that we all know and love that we have today in Christianity. But it's all about money. Building their empires on the backs of Christians who, who can't or won't see the principle. And you will, you will, give, you will give to your bled out. They will ask you, you'll go on Sunday morning, you'll get 15 minutes Bible and 30 minutes give money. And then Sunday night, the son of give money. And then Wednesday night, give more money. That's all they care about. And uh, you will give and you will give and you will be a good-hearted person and you'll think it's right. And then when you have an issue, you have a problem, and we all know this to be true, you'll never get to the pastor. He's too busy doing whatever he does. You'll get some second and third stringer that you're lucky if he knows the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament. To them, it's your money that's important. You don't have a name. You're a giving number. I actually was with a church for a while that they didn't call the people by name. They called them by their giving numbers. And the verse says, He that giveth to the rich shall surely come to want. They take and they take from you as long as you give it to them. And then they leave you on the ash heap. And if you have problems in your life, they will then blame you for the problems that's trying to help you. They'll never have enough. I remember one time a big famous preacher that uh, was nationally known. He's dead now. I won't tell you who he is. But, but uh, he was a friend with a pastor where I was at. And uh, they were good buddies. 
And this guy was on national television, and he had this great crusade uh, to raise $5 million. Uh, he was into Christian politics and all that stuff, you know. So he was on a TV, and you'd turn him on and watch him preach on television. Honest to goodness, you'd get about 15 minutes sermon, and you'd get 20 minutes. Or he would just whine how much money he needed. And they'd have every way you could turn the money in. And he finally got his $5 million. And I remember that we all went to dinner someplace, and I was sitting close to where they were, and I was listening to I wasn't in the conversation. I was listening. And my preacher said, well, I heard you got your $5 million last week. And he said, yeah, I did. He said, praise the Lord. He said, yeah. He said, you ought to be happy. And then you know what he said? He said, yeah, I got that $5 million. Now I need another $5 million. It's never enough. It's never enough. You know what's true in your life? If you put your God as money, you'll never have enough. You'll never have enough. When it comes to the things of the flesh, your flesh will never say, I have enough. Your flesh will say, you guys are really good. I love the way you say Because that was in the movie. It wasn't feed me. It was feed me. Some of you got it down really good. I learned a long time ago that all the popes weren't in the Roman Catholic Church. There's some in the Baptist churches too. Now in a worldly scenario, this is a great illustration of the, of the payday loan places that you see. You know, and credit cards. They loan you with money at ridiculous high interest rates. Now, you know, you see a payday loan almost on every street corner in Kansas City. You know that? I mean, they're everywhere. You got more payday loans than you got McDonald's. There's something fundamentally wrong with that. You know why that is? Because they work. They make millions and millions of dollars off the backs of poor people who can't afford it but need the money. And so they make, as the proverb says, money off of them. And they're making millions of dollars. I'm going to give you one good principle here. That if you don't get anything else, get this. Real Bible-based Christianity will always be about giving to others, not taking from them. That's the key. Now, I, I learned the Bible and its amazing principles. Back in the day, this is about 1972, long before most of you were born. When I was back in Canton, Ohio, we had a Thursday night Bible study and Sunday morning, much like we do here. I learned the format of any question from the Bible based on what Mel Sabaka, my father in the Lord back then, did. And I was in that for a number of years. In all those years, I never asked a question. My goal was, is I wanted to learn the Bible. I really didn't know anything about principles at that time like I do now, but I wanted to learn the Bible. I wanted to learn the Bible more than anything else on this planet. I, I, I tried every, everything I knew where I read about somebody to be quick, quicker to learn things. And I was pretty stupid. I took a speed reading course. I think I told you before. I got to the place where I could read five, six hundred words a minute. I, I, I read somewhere where that uh, you had a, when you went to bed at night, it was light sleep and dark sleep, or light sleep and deep sleep. And uh, I, somebody said that if you play something while you sleep, 
that it goes into your subconscious and you remember it in the morning. So I, for a month, I, I, I put on the book, I wanted the book of Romans and uh, uh, Dr. David Allen was a great, uh, and so I would go to bed at night and I'd put on one of his tapes. Somebody said, did you learn the Bible? No, but I spent about $45 on batteries. I didn't learn anything that way. Somebody said, well, you got to read the Bible over and over again. And I had a guy in my life, my father and Lord, who really knew the Bible. He knew more. And he read through the Bible once every 33 days. So I thought that was the key. So for three years, I read through the Bible every 30-some days. Was more messed up at the end of that three years than I ever was. Because my whole spirituality and my life depended on did I get my 30. You got to read 30 chapters a day. Excuse me, 50 chapters a day to get through it in 30 days. And by the end of that time, my whole spirituality was based on did I get my 50 chapters in or not. It was stupid. So then I realized that there was no easy way to learn it. You had to be a workman. So I went Thursday night Bible study, never asked a question. Everybody else was asking them. And I just laid down every question that they asked. Wrote it out, got the answer. And I may have gotten five or six questions every night. I'd go on Sunday morning and he would lay out, he was teaching the Gospel of John. I would lay out everything and I would go home and I would lay all those things out. And I had it in my mind that by the next Thursday night, if somebody would ask that same question, I could answer that question because I had taken that week and committed myself to learning what I had gotten that week. And I went through the Bible with him and everything that they did, cataloging. And then as I got a little older, I saw the principles and I saw how that the things that I was learning fell into the circuit board mindset of coming into sections of principles. And I began to put those down and everything I learned, I would have never sat through a service like this where somebody laid out seven or eight principles and not had them down. You wouldn't have to teach me principles. You might have to explain to me how they exactly work, but I wouldn't sit around saying, feed me, because I realized that I had to develop my own spirituality and me getting into the Word of God myself and digging it out was just part of getting from the babies, little children and children, to the young men, the fathers, the aged, the elders, and the aged. And that's the process you have to go through. Back then in that day, nobody discipled me. There was no discipleship one. There was no discipleship two. I built those in 1978, 77, 79 someplace. When I went through it back in the day, there was nobody to disciple anybody. Nobody sat down with me on a weekly basis like they do with you. Hey, I'm glad we do. We'll continue to do it, but I'm telling you, there's a good upside to that, and there's a downside to that. Because Christians today are so lazy when it comes to the Bible that they will just enjoy your spirituality. They'll enjoy you doing all the work in the Bible and never do it themselves. And all through the life, it'll be feed me. Give me this. Give me that. Teach me this. And after four or five years, you see that nothing has really changed in their life. They're 
sons and daughters are making stupid choices. Their own life is making stupid choices. They can't put two and two together spiritually and come up with four if their life depended on it. You know why? Because it's been a life of feed me. They want you to feed them and they'll never learn to feed themselves. Nobody discipled me. Nobody brought me through discipleship too. The first book I ever got was Pete Ruckman's book on Genesis. The second book I ever got was Pete Ruckman's book on Revelation. He didn't have near the books out that he has now. And I went through those things and poured out those things. You know why I did that? It's not, I did it for one reason. I was committed to learn that Bible. I got what I could from everybody else, but I understood that I had to have a commitment to study it myself. It says, study to show thyself approved a workman unto God, which needeth not to be ashamed, be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. I had to be committed to that. And you'll never learn anything about God or the Bible just by wanting it. It will take a commitment. And when you commit to something, honestly, you know how it works, other things have to go. There's only so much room for commitment in our lives. And then we get what? Overcommitted. To commit to that means some changing some things. And I learned it was came started from a commitment to learn. And you and your spiritual growth will never move past the baby, the little child, the little children, or the children. You'll never get into that young man, father, elder, agent, until you are committed to getting into that book and digging it out for yourself without any help. That doesn't mean that people don't encourage you, you don't still get this and you just don't get that. It just means that you're getting a lot of things that are helping you dig what you're digging out, not sitting back doing nothing and living off of somebody else's spirituality. Let me tell you something. You've been in any church that teaches the Bible for three or four years around it, and you don't have a book of principles, you're in the, you're in the basement with that feed me tree. Learning to fly through the situations of life. I want you to fly. Every mother bird wants her baby birds to fly. She'll build a nest way out of the way where nothing can get it. I try to keep this church way away from whatever can hurt you. And she has those little, 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 little birds that she has in there, and they're in little eggs for a while, and she protects them. She sits on them. She guards them. When the big, big birds come around, hey, I've seen a little sparrow take on a, take on a hawk. I've seen a little sparrow take on a crow that got too close to her nest. When them, them hawks, I mean, the hawk is ten times bigger and stronger. He ain't messing with that little sparrow. That little sparrow's faster. He just goes on his way. But then that little, that little, those little blue eggs crack open and those little heads stick out with their mouths up in the air. So then she goes all over the place in my backyard, in your backyard, looking for worms. And she picks those worms up and she flies up and those little birds are there and then she drops those worms in her mouth. I've watched it happen. It's part of the process. It's just like here. I make this little nest and I put you in there. You hatch out of your egg. And you're sitting there with your mouth open and I give you little worms out of the Word of God. 
But you know what happens? That little bird comes to the point sooner or later where it starts to grow. <laughs> it starts to move its wings. And mama puts them out there and mama gets them out there. And at some point, she kicks them off the limb. And they, firstly, are going to hit the ground. So you know what they do? They have a natural instinct. They start flapping their wings. And suddenly they find out what's going down. Next thing you know, they're flying everywhere. Next thing you know, when they're old enough and they have little chickens in their, little chickens, they have little chicks in their their nest, and the big hawk comes, they're scaring the hawk away. I want you to fly. I want you to soar. I want you to be as high and sore for God and everything that he wants you to be. But I'm telling you, you can't just be a pilot. You can't just fly in fair weather. You just can't fly when the sun's out. You can't just fly when you get the weather report. Well, there's storms moving in. Oh, I can't fly in that. You want to say storm moving in? No problem. Get in that cockpit, fire it up. Get into that thing, and when you get into the stuff that you can't see, what is upside down and inside out and right side up, follow your instrumentation. Follow the principles. The principles will bring you through every storm of life. Without them, you'll crash and burn. <laughs>